Go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip to Hebrews 7. I'm going to read Matthew 23, 23, and also we'll read Hebrews 7, but you can hang out there in Hebrews 7. Continuing our ecclesiastical schematic series, we're talking today about tithes and offerings. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 23, 23. These are the words of God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made life but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them had collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Let's pray. Our glorious Father and Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love and strength to follow on the path you have set before us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now I want to I spend some time this morning looking to the word for guidance about money. Um, any, any conversation about the church will invariably either make people shudder when you talk about money, or they will embrace it as teaching from the word of God. And I will say that any series on the doctrine of the church that does not include a discussion about tithes and offerings is a series that has not fully explored the topic at hand. And I will say it all, it would be very easy to skip over this topic, and many pastors do, because one, the livelihood of pastors is always at stake. So no money coming in, no paycheck, no food on the table. That's the, uh, you know, the general uh, paradigm here. So that makes pastors a little squeamish on the topic. But the other reason is because pastors do not want to come across as trying to control how people spend their money. And, you know, in certain contexts, it's a very simple message to convey, but in other contexts, it can be a difficult message to convey. And I'll tell you, in our context, it's, you know, I I feel quite at at home and at peace addressing the topic um, with you all today. But with those dynamics at stake, it can, it can be difficult for pastors to want to deal with the topic. And to the contrary, though, I do not believe that's a problem for the simple fact that the authority by which any minister or preacher speaks is the authority of Scripture, right? Whether it's in the assembly of God's people or at, at, at the college campus, when we're teaching and preaching and, 
engaging people. We're not doing it on our own authority. And, and that's usually how people perceive it. Like, what, by what authority do you say that mur- abortion is murder? Well, by the authority of God's word. We wouldn't say, well, I just came up with that. <laughs> we all go on the authority of Scripture. So if the Bible teaches it, it must be declared and it must be obeyed as well. And the Bible teaches tithing and generosity and deals with this subject. Therefore, it must be declared and it must be obeyed. The various issues surrounding the tithe are as follows. How much exactly is required if it is required? Is it 10%? Who has the lawful authority to collect the tithe? Where should the tithe go? Uh, What do we do with the money once it comes in? Am I, another question that people ask, am I supposed to tithe off the gross or the net of my increase? Um, Your average American either gets a monthly paycheck or bi-weekly or some, some weekly. So after the government steals it under the name of FICA and other taxes, you know, am I supposed to tithe on that or is it the whole thing? People have questions like that and I think we can We can deal with it in a biblical manner. Furthermore, is it up to the individual to simply decide haphazardly what he's going to do with his money? So should our conscience be bound by ourselves and our thinking, or should they be bound by the Word of God? Is it up to the individual to exercise that right? That is a question we want to deal with as well. Now, before we get into the text, I want to remind us that the gospel affects everything. It affects everything, your relationships, how you view the world, everything, and it affects our wallets too. And it should affect our wallets. Following Jesus requires everything. He told us to give it all up to follow him, did he not? It means that we have to to give up everything to follow him. Your, Your heart has to be given up to him, your possessions, all of it is supposed to be given up to him. And 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is a verse I often reference in my own uh, thinking and, and I, something I, you know, it's just, it's just a good one to have in the, uh, in the repertoire. But 1 Corinthians 4 7, it's okay. 1 Corinthians 4 7 reminds us what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When we talk about tithes and offerings, we're talking about the gospel applied to stewardship. Are we good managers of what it is God has given us? If money belongs entirely to God, including your assets and so forth, how are we, how are we doing managing the wealth God has given us? We're supposed to be good stewards. How are we doing with it? It's all his. We're the custodians. After all, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. But being generous begins with a heart that worships God and uses money. Being generous begins with a heart that worships God and uses money. It does not worship money and use God. So let's consider our text here, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, the, the question of the validity of, validity of the tithe is found in several places. 
Um, We assume as Christians, when we're reading our Bibles, we assume covenantal continuity unless told otherwise for reasons we'll see, see shortly. In other words, let me say it this way. Just because it was something in the Old Testament doesn't inherently mean that it doesn't apply today. Just because it was something in the Old Testament doesn't mean, well, we don't need to obey that. That was Old Testament. That's old news. Perhaps the most clear teaching from Jesus is right here in this very single verse. In castigating the religious leaders, Jesus affirms that their desire to tithe is right and good. Their desire to tithe is right and good. Things you should have done. Now, obviously, the issue was not tithing, but tithing while neglecting the weightier provisions of the law, just justice and mercy and faithfulness. So Jesus affirms, you should have done this. It's good and right that you tithe. But guess what? You neglected some other things. And what Jesus means is that it's possible to do the right thing externally. It's possible to do the right thing externally, like washing the outside of the cup or having a whitewashed tomb. You can do the right thing externally while having a heart that is far from the action. So you can wash the outside of the cup and then the inside of the cup is dirty. The, the tomb is full of dead bones. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that we must consider our hearts. We must consider our hearts giving not grudgingly or under compulsion. So not with reluctance, not with hesitancy, not distressingly. For God loves a cheerful giver. So God always wants the heart first. God wants the heart first and then the outward. If God loves a cheerful giver, might we say that he despises a penurious or a tight-fisted giver? If he loves a cheerful giver and we're not being cheerful, might we say that he despises the opposite? The problem with the Pharisees and religious leaders wasn't the fact that they wanted obedience to God's law. That's not their problem. The problem was their insistence on picking and choosing what they did without regard to the heart of the matter. They wanted God's law on their terms and not God's. That was their problem. Now, if you're, if you're tithing faithfully, uh, even scrupulously, like you're just down to the scent, you're just paying attention and you're doing what you need to do, um, but your heart is set on worshiping someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then your tithing, though Jesus affirms that it is required, isn't what it's supposed to be. So you can, you can obey the outward act, the law, and then inwardly be far from it. Now in that same passage, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows will, with blessing will also reap with blessing. So the the principle of sowing and reaping is built into God's covenantal world. And when we don't consider our hearts, we're going to be hypocrites. And Paul says that giving is an investment into the kingdom. And when you invest in the kingdom, the return on investment, the ROI, is always good because the sowing of monetary seed into the fertile ground of the kingdom of God is what we're doing. We're planting gospel seeds. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, all of it when sown into the world, gives us a harvest of kingdom fruit. So think of it this way. We like to think of tithing in purely monetary terms, right? We're just giving, and it's just simply a ones and zeros thing. But Paul says, no, it's actually a righteousness thing. It's a justice thing. It's a mercy thing. So tithing is bigger than just transactions through a bank account. 
It's, it's, it's righteousness, it's goodness, it's peace, it's all of these things, because all of that is an expression of what's going on in our hearts. So we must do it. We must fund gospel ministry, but we must do it with a certain paradigm in place coming from an opulent heart, lest we be deceived into thinking that our efforts are what does the job and not the work of the Holy Spirit. So you, you can turn tithing into works righteousness. Um, just sin will always do so. Now flip to Hebrews 7, unless maybe you're already still there, but Hebrews 7. The passage here in Hebrews is important for our purpose because of the argument being made regarding Jesus' priesthood being rooted not in Levi, but in Melchizedek. So there's an argument happening, we're dropping into it in Hebrews, where Jesus' priesthood doesn't, he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, so how does he get his priesthood? Well, you go further, you go back to Melchizedek. You, in fact, go before Levi ever even existed. So that's, that's the argument here in Hebrews. Now, generally speaking, your average evangelical Christian will look at the tithe, look at the Sabbath, and even look at the principle of circumcision and its relationship to, say, baptism. They will look at those things, and they will conclude, look, that's Old Testament stuff. And those things belong to the law, and since, remember, we're under grace, we have no real use for them. We're under, we're under grace now, right? We're not under law. And they will just say all that stuff is Old Testament, so be it. And I'll tell you, I've heard preachers say as much, especially regarding the tithe. They, they will not preach on the tithe because, well, that's legalistic. Because that's an Old Testament. Like, the God of the Old Testament is legalistic. Um, and that's, that's what people will say. They will tell you it's a Mosaic law thing. It serves no purpose in the New Covenant era. I think this is a grave mistake. And not only does Jesus contradict these preachers in Matthew 23, 23, Hebrews has an argument altogether different. Let's talk about this man, Melchizedek, mysterious figure. He's the king of Salem. He was a priest of the Most High God. He had an ecclesiastical interaction, shall we say, with Abraham. After Abraham goes to war and destroys the evil kings and plunders their belongings. And remember the, the, the kidnapping of Lot, his nephew. Abraham goes on the warpath. Lots of interesting theonomy applications there. What should be done with kidnappers? Death penalty. Um, but we have this interaction. So as an act of, of worship and subservience to ecclesiastical authority, Abraham gives a tenth. That's what the tithe means, by the way. It sort of gives it away. <laughs> tithe means a tenth. And he gives a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek for the Jerusalem church. So hang with me. Abraham plunders the kings, takes a tenth, gives it to Melchizedek, tithes it to him. Now, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. His eternality is highlighted in the mysteriousness of his person. He has no father or mother. That's what we're told here in Hebrews. No father or mother. There's no genealogy. There's no birth announcement. There's no obituary. There's nothing. There's just this guy who's a king and a priest. He shows up. Nobody knows anything about him. And Abraham ties to him. Now, the point is, he's a priest continually. That's in verse 3. So, it's a priesthood established by God which lasts forever, unlike the temporary priesthood of the Levites. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, and I think that's the, you know, he's just making this argument. Here's Melchizedek. Jesus is of that line, 
as Steve read in Psalm 110. He's of that line, but that line is eternal because there's no beginning and no end. That's the line, uh, the argument in Hebrews. Now, Abraham, the patriarch, in verse 4 here, he gives a tenth of the spoils. And remember that this transaction happened all the way back in Genesis 14. In turn, just like the Levites were commanded to receive a tithe from the rest of Israel to support the ecclesiastical functions of the, the tabernacle and temple, so Melchizedek received a tenth from Abraham. But here, the, however, the difference here is the promise given to Abraham. The tithe, just like the Sabbath and like circumcision, is not an invention of Mosaic law. People think, oh yeah, the circumcision requirement, that's totally the law of God and Moses. No, it goes back before Moses. The Sabbath. Yep, God instituted it with Moses on Mount Sinai and repeated it in Deuteronomy to the next generation going into the land. That's Mosaic law. We don't have to follow that. No, Sabbath came before that too. Genesis chapter 1, God rested. So you have these things that people just assume we can sweep it under the rug of Old Testament law and we don't have to deal with it anymore. But the reality is it's not an invention of Mosaic law. Tithing was a principle operative before Moses was even born. The tithe is a creation law, just like the Sabbath. It's a law of the promise, a law of Abraham, if it's a law of anybody. And it transcends any one covenantal era, and thus it applies to all covenantal eras. And this is really not that controversial. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not controversial to say here. It's controversial to say in many evangelical churches. Now, as the story goes, we find that Abraham gives the tithe, the tenth, to Melchizedek. But Melchizedek gave bread and wine to Abraham. Bread and wine, the meal of the priest kings, he gave that to them, to Abraham, in exchange for the tithe, which points us to the Lord's Supper. So here's part of the point. Melchizedek had the lawful authority to receive the tithe, just like the church today has the lawful authority to receive the tithe. All right, Melchizedek had the lawful authority to receive the tithe, just like the church today has the lawful authority to receive the tithe. The, here's the argument. The priesthood of Melchizedek is judicially superior to the Levitical institution. And part of the reason we can say this is because Jesus' priesthood is tied to it. That's the point of Hebrews. Like, Jesus is a greater high priest. Why? Well, because he's not in Levi. That was temporary. That's abolished. He's in Melchizedek. You've got to go back even further. So his priesthood is bigger, better, more glorious. It's judicially superior to Levi. And Hebrews goes on to say that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Uh, he was his great-great-grandkid. And Levi, through Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek, which also proves the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood. So even Levi was subservient. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. One of the twelve sons, the twelve tribes, came out of that. So Levi himself, as a great-great-grandkid of Abraham, was still subservient to Melchizedek. So that's the argument, that's the lesser-greater argument of Hebrews. I want to give you just a side note before we come back to this. 
I think there's one more dynamic of our understanding of tithes and offerings, and it's found in Leviticus 9, which we discussed earlier in the series. You'll remember that there are these interesting offerings that are put together in order, in a specific order, for the worship in the temple and the tabernacle. The first offering was, the first offering in the tabernacle and the temple worship was the nearbrot offering, the korban. It's just called a nearbrot offering. And this is the call to worship where the worshiper is invited into the presence of God. When you brought your animal sacrifice to the temple compound, there's an order to how this works. That's the first offering, and it's a call to worship. The second offering was the sin offering, the hatath. The, the sin offering is often sometimes called the purification offering. So the, worship, the worshiper uncovers himself before the Lord because sin, biblically, is hiding from the Lord. We hide from the Lord. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They created something to hide themselves. Sin is a hiding. This offering is an uncovering. It's laying not only the heart, but the whole person before the Lord. This is the confession of sin element of worship. God, I'm a sinner. I uncover myself. So when we pray together every Sunday, the Lord's Day, we confess our sins, and there's a whole precedent set for us in, in the Old Testament. The third element is the whole burnt offering, the olah, the third, uh, the third of a series that's the whole burnt offering. The smoke of the offering ascends to heaven where God is said to inhale it. God smells the offering and is pleasing to him. In burning certain portions of the animal sacrifice on the altar, the worshiper would signal to God that he or she desired to ascend to the presence of God in order to petition him for certain needs. So the goal was always in this offering to secure a response from God. It's to hear from God, but also to grab his ear. And that's all happening at the same time. And this particular aspect of worship is kind of a call and response toward God. And what we think of it today is the preaching of the word and the prayers of God's people. Preaching is meant to convey God's word, but then we pray together and we grab God's ear. So that's tied to this offering. The fourth offering is the grain offering, the minah, minah, the grain offering. This is a, a gift. It's a tithe offering unto the Lord. It's a tribute to God. When we tithe to God through the church, we are demonstrating that God is in charge of our labors. So when you bring that offering to the temple, you are saying, God, you are in charge of my labor. Everything I have is yours. I'm giving you a tenth of it in worship towards you. The fifth and final offering was the peace offering, the shalem. Sometimes it's called a well-being offering. This was the time when you partook of food in an act of worship. It's the fellowship meal. It's a thanksgiving offering. You might call it a Eucharistic meal. And indeed, that is what the Lord's Supper is. So tithing was part of the worship in the liturgy of the tabernacle and the temple. So know that, biblically, there's a lot of imagery connecting it to worship. So back to Abraham for a second. Before the New Covenant communion meal, what we call the Lord's Supper, before it's a fulfillment of the Passover, it's a fulfillment of the Feast of, of Salem, the Feast of Abraham. Gary North says it like this, The Lord's Supper is analogous judicially to the Passover, 
But the bread and wine of Melchizedek had greater authority than Passover. The argument from Hebrews regarding the superiority of Christ's priesthood is tied to Melchizedek's receiving of Abraham's tithe. That's why Hebrews brings it up three or four times here in just seven verses. The tenth, the tenth, the tenth. There's a connection there, and we need to pay attention to it. The new covenant is better. We know it's more expansive and authoritative than the old because Melchizedek received Abraham's tithe. So the promise that was made to to Abraham is judicially tied to the tithe and the receiving of bread and wine. And that's why when we come to the New Testament, the church... The church has the institutional and judicial authority to receive the tithe from its members, and as a result, the members have a judicial responsibility to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So to bar someone from communion for unrepentant sin is a judicial declaration with serious consequences. And it should be treated as such. When someone is told that they may not partake of the Lord's Supper, It is because of unrepentant sin. So that is true. And we've already covered the Lord's Supper and why it matters and why it's important. But according to Malachi 3.10, there is one and only one storehouse, the church. The kingdom tax of the tithe is for the church and then the kingdom for reasons we'll get into shortly. So how shall we then live? The Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, is something that orients your time. It orients your time. We start our week with worship, and then we work. Start our week with rest, and then we work. That orients your time. It's like tithing your time. Who gets my time? God gets my time, first and foremost. Baptism orients your identity. It it puts God's name on you. It tells you who you really are in Christ. Baptism orients your identity. The Lord's Supper orients your mission. I'm in Christ, I feast on Christ, and then I live for Christ. I live in the world with the gospel. So the, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, orients your time. Baptism orients your identity. The Lord's Supper orients your time, or your, your mission. Tithing, however, orients your kingdom budget. So all these things we do are meant to orient us towards a specific posture and how we live. Money, we know, is a medium of exchange. Its value depends on the flow of free market economics, or in our case, socialistic economics. As you all go to the grocery store and think, what is going on? As gas continues to creep up a little bit, they cause the problem and then credit themselves for lowering it. It's just amazing, the the stupidity. But that's generally, money is, is a free market medium of exchange. It's what we use to assign value, and then we transact it when we do our business. But the larger issue with money, however, is the fact that God owns everything, and we've been giving, given everything we have, right? God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist declares. The earth is the Lord's, so he owns everything, but then he gives it to us, and everything we have is given to us. Um, And that's a hard thing, kids, for you to remember, is that you, like your parents, did not bring anything into the world, all right? You were born, it was a little bit messy, uh, actual and metaphorical, (laughs) and, but you didn't come with the credit card, right? You didn't come with a bank statement. You have nothing. Everything that you've been given is because of the Lord. 
which means that Christians are to be grateful consumers and generous givers. We're supposed to be grateful consumers. People preach against, you know, preach against consumerism and stuff. It's like, well, you were born with a mouth and a stomach. Like, you're supposed to consume. It's built in. But we're supposed to be grateful consumers. When we, when we eat food, why do we, why do we um, pray? Well, we're grateful. <laughs> we're grateful for God's provision. You know, especially when we ask God to bless something that uh, may or may not have like thousands of calories. So we're supposed to be grateful consumers, but we're also supposed to be generous givers because of that. So what, what sets the priority of our view of money and wealth is ethical and it's judicial, meaning God has given us everything we have in order to prove our faithfulness in managing wealth. That's the ethical, that's the moral. He's given it to us. How are we going to do with what we have? But it's judicial also in the sense that God brings real sanctions and judgments in history against his people and his enemies, depending on whether or not they're adhering to God's standards for it. So if if we are disobedient to God's required tithe and the Lord's Supper is tied to this ecclesiastical transaction, then it follows that one could be under the judgment of God for receiving communion, wanting the benefits of Christ, while stingily refusing to do what God requires, sacrificial tithing. That could very well happen. And this is the heart of cheap grace that Bonhoeffer warned against, wanting Christ on one's own terms, the very thing Jesus excoriated the Pharisees about. Now, there's a question in our circles uh, pertaining to the tithe. Now, Rashtuni believed that the kingdom must be funded and that the tithe can just go anywhere depending on the giver's desires. It's like, okay, I'm going to tithe 10%. I'll give like four to the church and I have six for like these other projects I'm working on. And, and many will say, well, that's, that's okay because you get to decide and, you know, it's up to you. The kingdom has to be funded. Amen. Right? Who among us would say that that's not the case? But Rush Jr. would argue that. Now, Gary North, who happened to be his son-in-law, <laughs> wrote some interesting things about his father-in-law, kind of blowing up, I think, and dealing with that argument rather handedly. And that's in our book that we recommended, Tithing in the Church. The issue here is growth of the kingdom. How does it grow? How does the kingdom actually grow in the world and by what means? How does it grow in the world? Because we can say that all day, but if we don't define it, it means nothing. How does it grow in the world and by what means? North, he argues rightly two important ways the kingdom grows. Number one, the confiscation of Satan's assets through God's God's adoption of Satan's human disciples, meaning Jesus is plundering Satan's goods. So that's why when the Israelites left, they plundered the Egyptians. We love that verse around here. They plundered the Egyptians. That's God's stuff. The capital that's out there that's being mismanaged or even stewarded well by those who hate Christ does not belong to them. It's God's capital. So the economy that our current president is ruining through stupid policies is God's economy. And he's mismanaging it and those around him. I know it's not just one person's fault, but... There's a whole host of people doing this, and they're stealing from God because they're stealing from God's people. But God grows the kingdom by 
taking the assets that have been used for Satan's kingdom through regeneration, through bringing people into the kingdom. As, as people become Christians, part of the discipleship program is you have to now figure out how to use your wealth to the glory of God and not the glory of yourself. So that's one way. That's the first way God will do this in building his kingdom. The second way is the economic growth enjoyed by God's human disciples, which enables them to redeem the world through purchase. What North is saying is that not only does God take the wealth that he's given to the unbeliever, uh, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just, right? He takes that, and not only that, but now we do something with it, and we build institutions. We build godly schools and not godless schools. Um, we build hospitals, which Christians did. We, we go to Africa, and we minister to those who need health care and need the gospel. Like we, as Christians, do that. We take that economic productivity to the next level. But that's how God grows the kingdom. He uses human disciples. He uses people. So the kingdom that Jesus Christ established is tied to his purchased covenant keepers and the totality of all of their covenant-keeping efforts as you make businesses and do business and grow money and, and you invest your retirement portfolio and you watch you know, interest be gained and you uh, use your money and wealth that way. So all those efforts of God's covenant keepers, what we do with our, how we are responsible in managing our funds all contributes to the kingdom growth. Now I agree with, with North's conclusions. I think they're admirable and I think they're right. He said this, first, all of the tithe goes to the local church. That's his argument. And I think that's argued biblically and well. You look at these passages. That's his conclusion. I think he's right. Second, gifts and offerings can go to other charities. So if you feel like you want to support other, other charities, so be it. Um, it. It's amazing how much wealth we have and the trillions of dollars that Christians really have and how much of it is wasted. So, tithe goes to the local church. Offerings, above and beyond, go to other charities. Third, the kingdom of Christ is extended by total productivity, including economic productivity. So the mindset isn't, like for our children and discipling our children, the mindset isn't, let's get you a good education so you can essentially go get a job that you hate and be a slave to the state. <laughs> That's what they want. Our kingdom vision is, no, you, let's help you start businesses so you can employ them, and then we will plunder that, and then we will grow the kingdom that way. It's a different mindset. Uh, fourth, the total, total economic productivity, not charity, is the primary economic means of extending God's kingdom in history. And this is why God promises long-term economic growth to covenant-keeping societies. You read Deuteronomy 28, when God's people are faithful, God blesses them, including economic productivity. The first 14 verses of there are all blessings. Their next 50 are all curses. When you disobey, things go really sideways. North continues, more wealth per capita should come from covenant-keeping men than is used by them. Now, what Scripture teaches from places like Numbers 18, Nehemiah 10, Malachi 3, 
is that the church holds the legal rights to the tithe because the church has a covenantal role in guarding the sacraments. Adam was to guard the garden sanctuary. The Levites were supposed to guard the holy place in the temple. The church is called to guard the same holiness, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, the ultimate punishment for covenant breaking is excommunication. When someone sins and they will not repent, they're sent out. They're declared to be unbelievers. Uh, Sending someone out like that and barring them from the Lord's Supper is a judicial action. What is everybody scared of today? The government, the state, right? If I don't pay my taxes, they're going to come and they'll take everything, right? Don't pay your property tax for a while. See what happens. They're not going to be generous. I, our property tax bill last year got messed up. Something happened. I only got one of them for one of our cars. And I called and asked for a grace period. And I pleaded with them. I was very nice. And they just wouldn't do it. You guys are like stone-cold-hearted people. What is your problem? You're, it didn't, it, something got messed up. And I did Crazy. And I, I was very nice. Please, O oh, tax collector, show mercy. No, we can't. The rule's there in place for a reason. Why is it they get to do that, but Christians don't? The rule of holiness is placed in, and if you won't line up, you cannot take the Lord's Supper, and that should scare you to death. Why is it that we can't hold the judicial transaction? Why is Biden allowed to still be in the Roman Catholic Church, and he's not excommunicated? I mean, I I expect that from a heretical religious group. I understand But from the Christian perspective, the sanctions of God are more than the state, and we should fear them a lot more. And that brings judgment against people, and they refuse to see it. These are jurisdictional boundaries set in place by God, and which is why tithing is connected, as shown in Abraham, to the meal of the king. How is it that we can take Christ, take, 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 but never give to him? Now, I want to get real practical, practical for a bit. The tithe is collected by the church for three main reasons, okay? Three main reasons. First is to fund the ministers as they labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 said that the, those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Now, I don't take the Jesse Duplantis thing and say that they need a 40,000-square-foot home, all right? Um, but I, they do need to be. They do need to be compensated. First Corinthians nine emphasizes that there is a connection with the Levites who served, and the pastors who do the same. Isaiah sixty six twenty one says the same thing. So we should fund fund those who labor in preaching and teaching. The second thing, we fund the work of the diaconate in taking care of the poor, those inside the household of faith, and then those outside. Okay, we, the, the family and church is responsible for welfare and charity, not the state. So you should go to family first. If you're struggling, go to your family first. Okay, then, then you appeal to the church. And as a young church like we are, a uh, smaller church, we don't, it's not like we have 10 million in the bank that we could just pay someone's electric bill for the year to help them because of, you know, an injury or something. So we have to figure out a way to do that. And that's a long-term goal, is to be able to have some of those things in place. But we don't want to send them to the state. Like, that's the last place we want, to, want them to go. But I also know we also are, it's tied into everything, and so there's a lot of extenuating things. But, so that's the second reason. We want to have funds to be able to aid people in their need. But the third thing is, Deuteronomy 14 says that we are to pay for feasts of thanksgiving. 
So essentially, like when we get, the tithe was collected in Deuteronomy to help fund, you know, bring, bring the wine, bring the bread, and let's celebrate unto the Lord. Now, side note here, if and when the Lord provides for us to have our own space for worship, we're, we're not, uh, you know, at the, uh, at the whim of, of someone else, but we can do what we would like to do with it. You know, I, I love to have like an old Puritan-style building with wooden pews and glorious architecture where you, you, you don't get to sit in comfort, you know. Um, <laughs> someday, Lord willing. I know your response is like, fine, cut the air conditioner. Let's see how the pre- preacher does then. Uh, you know, obviously the tithe would go to, to, to pay for those types of things. Um, lots of churches built schools through those means. Uh, that's one thing the Catholics did do correctly, and Protestants did kind of, but we missed it. Now, before we wrap up this study, I, I want to make sure we have a correct view of money and wealth. If we don't, we're, we won't be good stewards. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says this, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. You're to enjoy this. You're to enjoy a nice meal around the table with laughter. God gave you that as a fruit of your labor. You should do it with thanksgiving. One of the worst things you could do, and I, you know, we, we talk about this in our home, and I would, you know, it should be talked about in every home, but one of the worst things you could do is presume upon the graces of God and just expect God to do this for me. Once you stop being thankful and grateful as a Christian, it's over. It's over. Wealth and economic productivity is a gift from God, which means that we do not want to worship it. It's a gift from God. We do not want to worship it. We want to worship with it, using it. Wealth can go as quickly as it comes. There are limitations to wealth. Um, One of the first limitations is wealth is a poor source of happiness. It's a poor source of happiness. Proverbs 3 says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who obtains discernment. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her produce better than fine gold. So wisdom and fearing God is more important than wealth. There are limits to wealth, so don't find happiness there. God is infinitely more satisfying, so don't trust the wealth. Trust the God of wealth. The second thing, so wealth is a poor source of happiness. It's also a rich source of temptation. Proverbs 28.6 reads, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, double dealing, though he be rich. Money, we know, is dangerous. It's attractive, so we'll try to obtain it no matter the cost. Another temptation is riches can grant us independence and social power and influence and social status. And, of course, we all know that that can be prideful. It can be self-righteous. It can be self, make us self-sufficient. I don't need God. I have all this wealth. It can make us entirely self-indulgent. It's a poor source of happiness. It's a rich source of temptation. It's also, wealth is ultimately worthless. Proverbs 11.4 tells us, Wealth will not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness will deliver from death. So money can buy a whole lot of stuff. It really can. Not as much today as it did five years ago. (laughs) But it can. It can buy us a lot of stuff. But it cannot buy righteousness and eternal life. Should you prosper in your life, Working hard, making money, investing, growing your bank account. Yes, it's godliness. 
You should. You should avoid hasty decisions. Any, any of us ever done that? Hasty financial decisions. Um, you should invest wisely. You should give, right? All of those things are true. But wisdom and righteousness is far more important, for without it, money can become an idol and money can destroy your soul. And I want to encourage you to be joyful in your sacrificial giving. Either we will love people and use money or we'll use people and love money. God has placed this 90-10 rule in order to keep us from loving money. Why did he, t- why did he say, set aside the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath? To keep, your, keep you from thinking that your time is yours. <laughs> it's the same thing with money. Mathematically, it's a wonderful commission program. We used to, I have to give away 10%. You should say, I get to keep 90 Because what does the government do today? (laughs) However, we we must give in order to prove that we don't love money more than God. We give to prove that it's not an idol. Charles Wesley once said that you ought to make as much as you can, give away as much as you can, and save as much as you can. It's a great advice. God increases our wealth, not so that we would increase our standard of living, but so we would increase our standing, standard of giving first. And that's why wisdom is, is necessary. And it's also why knowing and believing the gospel is necessary. Once your heart has been set free by the power of the gospel, you are free from the slavery of sin and idolatry and death. And you will be a, you'll be free to be a wise financial investor. We need more Christian billionaires. We really do. We need more and more and more of them. But you're free in the gospel to make sure your your financial portfolio reflects the priority of the kingdom. You are free in Christ to, to tithe and offer up even more as your heart desires as a way to orient your life in godliness. And I realize that this is a great problem. The state takes more than 10%. And the argument is, 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 if they take more than what God requires, it's a claim to deity. God requires 10%, and he does not ask us to tithe on the money that's stolen from us. Israel, whenever locusts would eat the field, they weren't to tithe on what was taken from them. So I realize all of you, we're all handcuffed right now by, by the U.S. government, who's not only stealing our money, but also creating a system in which our money is devalued, so we are handcuffed. But I'll tell you, like, you don't have to tithe on that. But tithing is required. Tithing is required. Confiscatory taxation is absolutely theft. I'll say it forever and ever. We have a ghastly beast in D.C. that wants more and more and more. Never satisfied. But even here locally, our county continues to take more and more and more. These rich men north of Richmond... <laughs> wants you to worship and provide for them, and that is a great idol. But this is no excuse to disobey God. We are called to follow Christ, obey his commandments, and clearly God cares about our use of money for his kingdom. And so I would encourage you to really ponder and think deeply about these things. Do you love money? Would anyone know that you're a Christian by looking at your balance sheet, your profit and loss? We really need to be challenged in this area. Here, but also like as the church worldwide. God has set these things in place to fund the work of his kingdom, and we get to participate in it with all joy, with all gratitude, with all thanksgiving. 
we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing with us when it comes time for our funeral. But we, what we do now matters in the new heavens and new earth. This world will be transformed. That's gospel truth. It will be transformed. Right now, it does count forever. So be wise, be judicious, and make sure that generosity reigns in your heart. After all, Christ reigns in our hearts too. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it gives us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be captured by your glory. You have saved us from our sins. You have died in our place for our sins. And those sins we can name, and especially the love of money being first and foremost. We know it is the root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of evil. And we see that paraded in front of us each and every day. So I pray, Lord, that you would remove that idol from us and help us to think deep, deeply about what it is you've called us to do in managing our wealth. We thank you for your provisions each and every day. We are grateful that you provide us our daily bread, that you forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And so we ask that you do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.